And I'll never really know the real truth to this day. The most important thing to me at that time was just getting home safe and, you know, not trying to play hardball. I wasn't a gangster. I wasn't a drug dealer. I was just a girl who went on a trip with someone she trusted. And yes, I made some mistakes. Yes, I was ignorant to the warning signs. You're listening to Create Community. I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me for a very unique episode is Emily O'Brien. Emily is the founder of Comeback Snacks, a gourmet popcorn company that she started in federal prison. Yes, you heard that correctly. After getting mixed up with the wrong crowd and the wrong substances, Emily made a colossal mistake and was sentenced to four years in prison. She started her company with the goal of creating a social enterprise that could provide reintegration opportunities for other ex-offenders. As Emily shares her story, we chat about the role community played in her journey before, during, and after prison. Let's jump right into it. Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the show. Yay, thanks, Marsha. I'm super excited to get your take on community. I think this is going to be a very, very unique episode. So to jump into it, I'd love to learn a little bit more about what your experience like was growing up. Take me to the early days of Emily and your childhood. What was that like? Do I start with the bowl cut? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good place to start. I love it. I had a bowl cut at a really young age, so I didn't have a lot of friends that were girls. I was a tomboy and I was also very introverted. So you can probably imagine it was hard for me to find solid groups of friends. I played a lot of team sports, but I didn't really have a lot of friends on these teams. Like they were just like forced friends. Like, you know, our parents would take turns driving us to practice or whatever. And then when I got to high school, I like kind of got more social. I didn't get a lot of attention from guys when I was in elementary school, but in high school, I definitely did and kind of became more feminine or like, I don't know, I learned how to just like make myself look more appealing. I don't know. So I started getting all this tension that I didn't know how to deal with. And then I didn't know how to talk to guys. So I kind of started going to parties and drinking because that was, you know, fireball whiskey was the easiest way to talk to people. (laughs) I had a great upbringing. Like my family was really tight. We spent summers at the cottage. Like my mom was a stay at home mom. And I also got my first job very young. So I learned very young that I didn't like having an allowance of 25 cents. And I didn't like other people being in control of how much money I could make. (laughs) And so I got my first job when I was like 10 years old delivering newspapers. I actually did the exact same thing. And I think I was also 10 years old. It is a bit more than an allowance. And I think it teaches you a lot of responsibility and just like what it's even like to have a job. Did you ever have like a rebellious streak like in high school or elementary school? Or did you kind of follow the rules more? I was pretty good in elementary school. Like I always had little jobs at recess or like I was always volunteering to do stuff. But then my rebelliousness kicked in when I didn't want to go to class sometimes. And I was, I was in grade six or seven. And I figured out this trick where it's if I faked that I was sick, they would take me to the nurse's room and then I would just leave out the emergency exit and not tell anyone. And I'd go home and watch Ed the Sock. And what did you end up studying after high school and how did you get started in your career? I went to University of Guelph for international development and this was being very curious about travel at a very young age, being very curious about the world, like because I did a lot of reading when I was younger, I wanted to go to these places that I read about. 
So my first trip I took at 18 and I went to Costa Rica for a month to volunteer. And that's when I kind of really liked just going to other countries and exploring them while helping out. Like I noticed the benefits of helping very early in life. And so this prompted me to go to school for international development, where I took a a nice five years. From there, you started a business, right? When I graduated university, I actually lived in Indonesia for a bit. And then I came back to Toronto. And over like those five years that I'd been in university and traveling after it, I'd like kind of built up a social media following and people had commented on my storytelling, how good I was at it. And I didn't like being in an office. So I figured, why don't I put the things that I like and the things that I'm good at together? And then that's when I came up with my first business. And that was a social media company. Very cool. On the surface, I think everything looked great. You know, you had this thriving business, you graduated from this cool program, you traveled, you lived abroad. When did things kind of start derailing in your life? And was there like a catalyst or something that happened that started taking you down the path to where you ended up? I think there was like a couple catalysts. Like the first one I would just say was a lack of direction. Like I liked my company, but I, I didn't really like what it was turning people into. Like I didn't like how consumed people were becoming with their image on social media and their like obsession with it and how they, people were always in their phone. And so this lack of direction combined with the environment that I was in, which was Toronto Liberty Village, the nature of my work often involved going out and doing deals like after dark and then like this thing happened in my family. So it was just this whole bunch of things that threw me into this like abyss. It was just like a corrosive mind. It was like not a good place for me, but I still pulled off the business side of it. But the emotional side, I, I did not pull off. That led me to my next little adventure. It's tough. Like sometimes everything can look perfect on the outside. And I think, you know, especially like with people who are really successful on the outside and their highlight reel looks great. A lot of the time you're battling something really dark inside or you're dealing with something really tough. I think something that, you know, comes up a lot in this podcast and just, you know, in general is this whole concept of you are the company that you keep. You're probably like the average of the five people that you're around the most. So what did the people in your life look like during that time? Like what kind of friends did you have? And was there like any particular individual that kind of started taking you down the wrong path? You know, I went out and I went to parties, but that's like not unusual. Like to say that people that party are like, bad people like that's completely not true the person that actually got me to break the law in a really big way was someone that I met through my work that also I kind of developed this pseudo relationship with and then he knew like what was going on in my personal life he actually owed me some money after like a number of business checks didn't go through and then he asked me to go on this trip with him and lo and behold like when we get there he's told me that we're going to be like bringing drugs back and he was just acting like oh my god, this is, you know, not important, it's not being so trivial, like blah, 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 all this stuff. And I guess he owed a bunch of money to someone else and had kind of got me on this trip under the illusion that it was just like something fun and harmless. It wasn't, but I just wanted to go home. You kind of sped through it a little bit, but this is somebody that you really did trust at the beginning. And I'm, I'm sure there were some red flags, but you did sort of develop a relationship with this person. And it was somebody that was there for you when you were really struggling with things that were going on in your personal life and other things. Tell me a little bit more about what happened on that trip and when you sort of realized that things were really going awry with what was going on. I went to St. Lucia with him and there were a number of warning signs that I see now, but that I didn't see because I was, you know, heavily using alcohol and I wouldn't say heavily using drugs because like, I didn't really miss a lot of work. Like I was still very functioning, but I was still sad. 
So I went on this trip with him and the three days that we're down there, like we're there for about a week and the third day comes and he's acting kind of like just weird and sketchy the third day. And well, I guess he was sketchy kind of before, but I didn't really notice it. His sketchiness was very profound by the third day. He's like, okay, our friends are coming to pick us up and we're not just here to play. Like we're here to work. And did you really think it was just fun and games? Nothing didn't really clue into me until like we actually get to this house and I, I had to get in the car with him basically. And there's, you know, piles of drugs in the walls and there's this woman there. She's acting so casual as if like, you know, I was excited to do this and like, she, thanks so much. And like, what? Like, so later on, I found out that he'd actually like told them beforehand that I'd be helping him bring back drugs to help cover some debt or something like that. And I'll never really know the real truth to this day. The most important thing to me at that time was just getting home safe and, you know, not trying to play hardball. I wasn't a gangster. I wasn't a drug dealer. I was just a girl who went on a trip with someone she trusted. And yes, I made some mistakes. Yes, I was ignorant to the warning signs. Yes, I took shortcuts when it came to my healing and trying to recover from this trauma and this kind of like loss of sense of direction that I was going through. Well, you were taking the drugs back and you ended up traveling back to Toronto when you were like heading to the airport and stuff. Did any part of you think that you were just going to like get through it and it would be okay? Or did you kind of have a feeling that you guys were going to get caught? Well, part of the story is that like I was freaking out like the last two days. I was just getting wasted and like just trying to make the time go by fast. And he told me that like, he could see that like this was not going well for me. Like, I don't know if he thought that I was so chill, that I was so open-minded that I could pull it off, but this was past my limit. He's like, okay, well, since you're like freaking out about it, like I'll just take these drugs when we land at Pearson, take them off in the bathroom and give them to me and I'll take them through customs. And I like, okay, I felt like a mild sense of relief, like still not a big one, but enough to calm me down. And so I was like, okay, I felt a little bit better. Still not well, but, you know, at least like some of the liability would be off of me if I didn't have to actually look a customs officer in the face because I knew I couldn't do that. But when we get to Pearson, you know, he tells me, oh, it's too late now. So he kind of tricked me the whole way. I end up having to walk through customs with these drugs on me and just getting grilled by them and not really knowing what my identity was that day because I'd been giving no coaching. So after a series of questions, they asked me, you know, if I was carrying drugs and I, my loyalty to him ended when he basically tricked me into saying like, he would take the drugs, you know, even if we got through, like I would have like ran away from him, but that didn't happen. And so I was kind of actually happy at the end of the day, I was happy that we got caught because I knew that I would really never have to talk to him again after this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's hard to imagine, but looking back on it, that, that does make sense. Okay. So you got caught there were some consequences that went with that but it didn't really happen right away it's not like you got caught and you went like straight to prison there was a situation with bail and you were able to kind of go about continuing with your business and continuing sort of what was your routine can you take me a little bit through that like what did it sort of look like and why did you eventually make the conscious decision to actually turn yourself in and go to prison it wasn't really a conscious decision. It was just the right thing to do and the smart thing to do. And they were right. Like, it, I didn't really fight the system. And like, I pled guilty very, very early because the legal fees were very high and the evidence was strong. <laughs> and I wanted to get it over with. And I recognized at that point that I did have a role to play. And sure, I didn't orchestrate this, but I should have put my ego aside and 
asked for help when I needed it and I didn't. So at that point, you know, I was like, okay, like, oh, I'm going to plead guilty, but I still did have to run my business, which was a nightmare because I was on bail. You know, I was worried that I was going to get pulled over for something. Like I had no idea how the system worked. This went on for two and a half years. Like I had to move back in with my mom because I was on house arrest. So it was a very, very stressful time for the family. So when I did actually go into prison, which was two and a half years later, my mindset had shifted. So had my identity, you know, I was playing the victim and sure there were a lot of factors where I was victimized, but I was also like kind of the perpetrator of my own fate in other elements. So if there was anything that I knew about myself, it was that I, in my whole life, I'd done way more good than harm and that I was capable of so much. And I had a family that really believed in me and I just needed to take responsibility Absolutely. I mean, I think your story is so fascinating. And it's something that really resonates with people in that you're not the type of person that somebody would imagine going to prison, like you'd be like the last person that somebody would imagine just the way that you described your upbringing and how like wholesome your childhood was. And it just shows that it could really happen to the average person, which is so crazy to think about. But I think what you're doing really kind of dispels a lot of myths and a lot of really bad opinions about it. So let's jump into your time that you did serve in prison. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about how you sort of viewed community there. So do you remember what you initially felt when you first got to prison? Like, what was that initial feeling like? To me, it was like I was moving to another country, somewhere with its own borders, its own laws, its own currency, its own language, not completely reframing it as this great adventure, but something that I could handle if I did it the right way. I was never a confrontational person and I didn't really have anything to prove when I was in there. And so the fact that I didn't really get into any problems in there, like really helped my experience. And I kind of wanted to talk to other people about, you know, how they got there. I was very curious about other people and how my experience was maybe similar to theirs. And I was just like blown away by like the number of stories that were so similar to mine and how the punishments were so severe to people that didn't have this severe intent to harm others with their actions. It was more of an intent to reduce the pain on themselves. And that's kind of the big difference that I noticed people in prison. It's like from the outside, it looks like these people are bad, they harm the community, but mostly it's to the things that people do that lead up to prison to conceal pain or reduce pain or something. It doesn't make everything right, of course not. But there are underlying issues of crime that make them actually not bad people and often the people in prison have been subject to horrendous horrendous abuse i was one of the lucky ones that never experienced abuse as a child or you know alcoholism in the family or any of these things that might have contributed to prison like i experienced none of that so i was actually lucky to have the support that i did because it could have been so much worse so my thoughts on community is that i felt right in place because you know i was there because i tried to cover up my pain and that's why a lot of people were in there too. Wow, that's such an interesting way of looking at it. I I never thought of it from that perspective, but that totally makes sense. You touched on it a little bit, but what types of people were in there with you? And like, did you meet any friends there? Did you feel a sense of belonging eventually? Did you feel like you fit in? There weren't really types of people. I mean, they were just people. Again, like definitely the role of privilege plays a role. 
like I could say there were some that had absolutely no family. There were some that their family disowned them or there were mothers in there. You know, 80% of women in prison are mothers, people that live in extreme poverty and just committed a crime to feed their child or something or did something for a partner because they were in an abusive relationship or they'd been beaten so badly that they had brain damage and had gone to drugs or, or something like that or committed a crime because of the, the abuse that they were suffering. But everyone in there, I noticed, really just wanted to feel loved and be loved for the duration of their sentence. From the day that they were arrested, they were told they were worth nothing. And so a lack of confidence and a lack of belief in themselves was really very common. And that was something that I kind of wanted to shed light on and actually help change that because the prison system isn't going to do that. They're just going to perpetuate the blame and keep talking about what you did and not what you can be. That's kind of what I wanted to change because that's how you can actually change is, is if you have people believing you and helping you move forward. Yeah, absolutely. It's so true. I think something that really helped you get through that experience and to really come out a stronger person is the mindset that you had and the, just the way that you kind of framed and viewed the experience. Can you share a little bit about how you like came to that mindset and what it was? So the mindset actually started before I went in. And I began to look at the things that I'd done, the volunteering that I'd done, the, the immense like network that I had. And you don't build networks by being a bad person. You build them because you help people and people trust you and, you know, you bring value to them. So I knew that despite the fact that on this piece of paper, the system said that I was this bad person, I knew that I was way more than that. And I had, again, tremendous family, tremendous support from my friends. You know, there were a very limited number of people that actually knew before I went in because well, I wasn't supposed to discuss the case. And I also was very confident in my creative abilities. And I recognized my creativity because I had used it for bad. I could weasel my way out of things. You know, when I was on bail and I, I didn't like my conditions, I would figure out ways to jig the house phone so that it looked like I was calling from the house when it wasn't. And I would create work environments and I would say it was work when really I was just going to the Raptors game. I kind of bent the rules that way and it probably wasn't for the best, but I did it anyway because I was still in that healing phase, still trying to understand the harm that had been done to me while trying to fix the harm that I'd done to others. So I kind of used my creativity for good and, and I want to use my creativity for good because that's way more sustainable. That's so crazy. Such a unique way of looking at it. I love what you said about using your creativity for good. And that's exactly what you did. Like within that experience in prison, you were actually able to start a business. Tell me a little bit about what it was and how you came up with the idea. One thing that I learned about business, and especially with my social media business, was that you have to like it, but it can't just be because you like it. You have to do it because it serves a purpose for others. And I knew that my story like wasn't unique when I got there and I began to see really the exceptional harm that prison does to people when they're in there. Sure, people, you want to do your time, but not just in there, but after, like the residual harm, the collateral damage that impacts a whole family, socially, mentally, economically, like, all these ways where prison is just like impacting people's lives way after they're done their time. And if we want to actually be a strong and healthy, forward-moving society, we need to change that. And I knew that also something that would help me feel motivated to do what I do was knew that I could actually create impactful change. And that's something that I call emotional profit. And so when I went to prison and I was like looking around at the similarities and one of those similarities was actually popcorn and sharing a meal together, which is like how we bond now, right? 
and I quickly discovered that like popcorn has relatively low overhead and I kind of used my resources in prison to come up with a business plan and I had mail sent in from the outside that had market research. I wrote a lot of letters and developed recipe ideas. So you noticed like when popcorn was this like bonding thing that you guys would all make and eat together. What was something unique about it? I know that you were finding spices and things to put on it. They were all like very simple ingredients. Constant kernels was the original name. And the first flavor that like really ignited my brain to do something with this kernel of popcorn was a flavor and it was lemon pepper dill. And there's actually another factor in this whole story. And that's like my history with eating and food. And because my tumultuous relationship with food that had actually led to my addiction as well, I didn't want this to kind of restart again in prison because I was in a stressful environment. So I was like determined to like find healthier foods for myself. And so the first recipes were actually healthy recipes. And then now that, you know, we've expanded our line, it's, it's more all about choice and kind of what you're craving and what you're feeling. I also did like peanut butter and honey and peanut butter and jam, which like I don't do anymore because it's just really difficult to make. It's more of like a gourmet one-off flavor, but just kind of using what we had because we had access to different spices. So cool. So resourceful. Like who hears the story of somebody starting a business in prison? So like the initial days of like getting it started and, you know, like actually making it a legit business. What did that look like? Like what steps did you have to take? The first step that I took was getting a licensed kitchen so that I could actually sell the product because you can't start a food business out of your house. And given my rap sheet, I was like, I don't need any more legal problems. So I wanted to do everything like by the book, you know, no questions, because I knew certain people would challenge me or like, be skeptical, be like, oh, she probably just like doesn't follow the rules, right? So I was about to just kind of put a halt and just like have my receipts and be responsible. And then I had like my supplies. And I started reaching out to people that had been to prison that had created things in prison, people in the community that had experience in the mental health and addictions field, entrepreneurship field, women in business, and just going to these events and providing little tiny sample bags and sharing my story. And that's kind of how I began to build it. Like I would do them every day if I could, you know, sometimes I did two talks a day or two sponsorships a weekend because it didn't cost me a lot of money. And then once people heard the story, because I, I shared it with, with the press and I knew that this would come with some negative repercussions, but I didn't care. I was already used to that. Like the system is the most ruthless critic of all, right? So you came up with sort of like the initial plan and started kind of like testing it when you were in prison and then you were able to start like scaling it up and get that kitchen and everything when you were out. How long were you actually in prison and when did you actually get out? I was in prison for 11 months and then I had to live in a halfway house for six months after that. So, you know, you have a curfew, you got to call them every time you're going somewhere and when you build a business, you're going a lot of places. So you can imagine how many times I was calling that house, like a kajillion. Like, oh, I'm going to Bulk Barn. I'm going to this store. I'm going to this store. And they started to get annoyed with me. Like they, they had no choice because it was their job. I want to chat about your community and life after prison. I know that now you've settled in Hamilton. Why Hamilton? And how did you go about getting yourself back into the community, kind of like feeling like you're part of it and building your network? I'm sure it wasn't easy and there was a lot of challenges and pushback with that. And because my path to prison, I think, was very complex. Like there were so many different factors. 
I knew that I could actually find a place in a number of different communities. This is not like a one faceted business. This is a multifaceted, not just business. It was, it's a social enterprise. It's like a social movement. And so I knew that there's a number of places that I could kind of connect with. I moved back to Hamilton because that was where I grew up. And if there was anyone that's, that was going to be kind of on my side, it would be like the people that knew me for a very long time. And this is one of the challenges that like a lot of people coming out of prison have is because their homes are so far away. So their crimes become less forgivable when there's not really any connection to the community, right? Like if I was a stranger, people would be like, screw that. So that I think was like a move on my part because well, my family was there and a lot of my friends were there and it was close. Like the halfway house was 10 minutes away from my mom's house. I sleep in Hamilton now, but I think my like 79 hour work week have led me to be in like a number of different communities in different cities and different industries. Absolutely. I mean, well, your business has like completely taken off and it's like it's growing in such exciting ways. And you're doing so much from like a speaking standpoint on PR and, you know, you were in Dragon's Den and there's like you're working on a show and your own podcast and like so many cool things going on. Take me a little bit through that. Like what's kind of the vision for the company now and what's next for it? So originally we called it cons and kernels because I thought it was witty. But then as I got out, I realized like we are so much more than that. And I was like, why am I defining us by just cons and kernels? Like that's not right, you know? And I didn't want to kind of perpetuate stigma or perpetuate pain that someone had felt in prison. And I was like, wait a minute, we've, we've actually made a comeback. That was more indicative of where we had come from. And it's, it's also a lot more relatable to more people because being in prison is not really that relatable physical prison but you know we've all been in some kind of prison before in our lives and we've all done things to get ourselves into those prisons whether they're financial prisons they're marital prisons they are you know emotional prisons whatever we've all been in them we've got ourselves there and we've also gotten out but i thought the better name was a comeback because it's just more positive and it really showcases what we've done and what we're capable of and what everyone's capable of who goes through adversity. I love that name. And I honestly just like got goosebumps as you like went through that analogy. I think it's the perfect analogy. I think everybody has fucked up at one point or another and like at least one area of their life and found themselves in some kind of prison. So you mentioned that there are sort of a lot of misconceptions and, and a lot of stigma around people that have been to prison and ex-convicts. What are some of those things that you're working actively to dispel? And what do you want people to know about other people like yourself? The first and foremost, and that's just like why we actually hire former offenders, is that they aren't good for employment. Like they're useless in, in a workplace or they're a danger to the workplace. You know, they aren't hard workers or something like that. And that's like the number one reason why I started the business was to help reintegrate and help give people a leg up from prison to the workplace. And in the workplace, there's all these, you know, rules, you got to do background checks. And they all say, oh, like, we're not saying no, but like, they always say no. They're just missing out on so much untapped talent. And also, if we send people to prison for something they did, okay, like, that's the taxpayer's dollar. But if we don't hire people after they've done their time, then we're also paying more for the social assistance programs. And then we're, and often they'll go back to crime. Often it just puts them in a terrible place when the people that have been incarcerated want nothing more than to get back on their feet again, to do something that makes them proud and their family proud and to know that they can accomplish something and to know that they're more than that label. I also work a lot with 
mental health and addictions and talk about why people that find themselves in addiction or bad environments end up in crime. And it doesn't mean that they're out to profit off crime. It doesn't mean that they wanted to drive a Lamborghini and be gangster. That's just not true. That's just like what you see in the movies. And that's kind of what gets us a bad rap. Absolutely. I think that's so important to highlight that these people should be considered for opportunities and they have so much to bring to the workplace and so many unique skills and a really unique perspective and a really diverse perspective. So I love that you're doing that work and you're highlighting the mental health aspect of it as well, because that's so huge. What communities are you part of now and why are they meaningful to you? Well, first and foremost, I'm part of the parole community. (laughs) You know, I'm still serving my sentence. I'm still reporting to a parole officer. So I talked with people all the time that are also going through the parole and we're, you know, I'm talking about the challenges and more setbacks that happen when you're on parole and like the control that they have on you when you're on parole. I'm also part of like a lot of nonprofit communities like Elizabeth Fry. I'm part of Chamber of Commerce communities. I'm part of startup communities. I'm part of recovery communities. I'm part of social enterprise communities. I'm part of sports communities, vintage shopping communities, podcast communities. There's lots of different things that I'm a part of. I love that you're part of all those different types of communities and you're finding really interesting people through them. So we spoke at the beginning about the importance of choosing your people and, you know, really like surrounding yourself with people that inspire you and that you're going to feel proud to, you know, be part of that group. How do you choose your people now? Do you feel like you're more conscious about it than before? And are there any like qualities or things that you really look for in the people who you let into your life these days? I choose my people because they're honest with me and they're transparent and they share things that are very personal to them and sensitive. They share things with me that they've been too scared to share. And so that's kind of how I choose people that are having the courage to change themselves, change their perception and also help change other people's perception. Like people that are willing to take chances to create change. If you can sort of like go back to the beginning, is there anything that you would have changed about your past experience or do you feel like it really shaped you into the person that you are and, you know, you wouldn't change it? I wouldn't change the mistakes that I made. I wouldn't change the harm that I did to myself, but I wish I could change the harm that I did to my family because I put them in a lot of stress and, you know, they had to kind of like really change their lives and it brought our family closer. Because it's a scary thing when your daughter gets arrested or your sister gets arrested or girlfriend, whatever. And no one knows that world. It's a, it's a very scary place to be. And my family was kind of living on edge for two and a half years. And again, like that's one of the negative effects of, of me not addressing my problems. It kind of caused this, not on its own, but like still I, I did a lot of harm to them and I wish I didn't do that, but it also created like a lot of love and actually brought out the unconditional love that we've always had. That's a really good way of looking at it. You mentioned that, you know, when you're out there and you're doing speaking engagements and your show and all of these things, like for the most part, the reaction is really positive and people are very supportive. Has there been any like pushback or any hate directed at you because of your story and where you come from and the business that you're building? There's definitely been doubt. There's been 
a lot of like people that have underestimated it or people that told me like, yeah, right. Like have fun little popcorn girl. <laughs> the system challenged me for a bit, you know, like my parole officer challenged me. There's definitely been like some online, like snickery comments here and there, but I mean, those don't really phase me, especially when you're doing so much good. Like you do any kind of project, whether it's in the workplace or in the public, like you're always going to get criticism no matter what. And you have to learn to deal with these in a healthy way. And I think we've all been like trolled at some point in our lives before. And I I just have this like shield that it doesn't bother me. If it's a constructive criticism, that's fine. But just like brash hate is just, it's not constructive. So it doesn't really mean anything. And I know that person doesn't know me. It's so true. Like I've realized that throughout my journey as well, through building Fuck Up Nights Toronto, I never expected it. And I, I've never really like been in the public eye at all before or have done anything like public facing before. But for the most part, like people absolutely love it. And, you know, the community has been so embraced here in Toronto, but there have been some trolls and I, I have received hate messages and threats because people have had a problem with like certain things about it, especially the name or not understanding where it's coming from or not liking me as a person who's leading this type of community. So I think I've realized that if you're building something, if you're doing something that's different then you know, you're out there and you're sharing your story, not everybody's going to love you, but you really have to learn to just like brush that off and really like cater what you're doing to your actual community and to the people that are there to support it because that's actually what matters at the end of the day the best way to eradicate stigma or people underestimating you is through proof no one will know you're the underdog if you don't bark (laughs) i love that so what's next for comeback snacks what are you excited about what should we be watching out for well i'm consulting on a new tv show that's coming out it's called pink is in So again, using my experiences to kind of share stories that happen just of how much nonsense goes on in the system. That was picked up by MSN Entertainment for Comeback Snacks. We just partnered with a co-packer and a distributor who's going to help us scale because right now we're at full capacity. So in order to actually serve more people and help share the message more, we had to partner with someone. So they're going to take our recipes and make more bags. So my staff currently, they're going to actually become regional managers, account managers. So instead of them being in the kitchen, now they're going to have more elevated skills and they're going to be brought to like managerial positions, which is like what I wanted to do in the first place. This is what they're capable of. And I know they can do it. So just a couple more questions for you. If you could sort of sum up your story, what would you want people to learn from your story? I guess I'd want people to know that like, we all say that forgiveness is universal. But we don't treat it like that. A lot of the time, we only forgive people that we know. And that's just because it's easier for us. Because ignorance is easy, but ignorance is actually expensive. And mentally, it's expensive. Socially, it's expensive in so many ways. And so if we actually believe in forgiveness, and we actually believe it's universal, we have to forgive strangers. Because if it was like our mom or our sibling or someone else, we would forgive them like that. Like we would come up with an excuse for why they shouldn't deserve the punishment that they're getting or something like that. If we believe in forgiveness, we actually need to apply it universally and not just say it. I think everybody should really take that to heart and really learn from that. And my last question for you is, and I ask this of everybody on the podcast, what does the word community mean to you? Community to me means waking up and knowing you belong somewhere and going to sleep, knowing you belong somewhere to know that you're never alone. That's such a great definition. Awesome. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. This was so much fun as always. Yay! 
I had such a great time chatting with Emily, and I hope this conversation was as eye-opening for you as it was for me. You can connect with Emily on Instagram at ems.obrien, and you can learn more about Comeback Snacks at comebacksnacks.com. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off. A huge thank you to Origins Media House for producing this series. You can find them at originsmediahouse.com, where house is spelled H-A-U-S, or on LinkedIn and Instagram at Origins Media House and Twitter at Origins Media.